Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. The whole direction of the social and human sciences of the last hundred years have been, it's been wrong. It's been misdirected. It's based on some sort of notion that everything's bottom up again, that if we just understand how the neurons work, we'll figure out what people are. Wrong, right? You have to understand what people are to know what neurons are. You have to go in the other direction. Well, I'm delighted to have with us today on the podcast, Professor Robert C. Coons from the University of Texas at Austin, where he's been for going on 33 years now. Professor Coons is a PhD from UCLA. He was a Marshall Scholar at Oxford before that, and before that, an undergraduate at Michigan State University. He is the author of six monographs, a couple edited volumes, and 50-plus peer-reviewed articles, so a substantial and growing body of work. He's a very active scholar, has written on everything from politics to metaphysics, And it's the latter that we'll probably spend a fair amount of time talking about today along with physics, because the big question that he'll be put to today is the resurgence of Aristotle in philosophy and particularly in philosophy of science. People paying more attention to Aristotle, is this a fad? Are there good reasons for it? And so why don't we just start there, Rob? First of all, welcome. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. My pleasure to be here. He is also, it's important to say, one of the Austin Institute's senior fellows. He's very a long proud time, to be so. Yeah, longtime supporter of the Institute, and we're very grateful to have him. But let's talk about the, just sort of set the scene for those who aren't philosophy professors Yeah, <laughs> uh, listening. Aristotle's making a comeback. What's that all about? Yeah, there's a, it's a remarkable renaissance, actually, in the last really 10, 15 years. I think before that, most philosophers would have thought, yeah, Aristotle's important, but, you know, it's ancient history, literally. <laughs> and I think, of course, most people believe that the scientific revolution of the 17th century, Galileo and Kepler and Newton and so on, were the end of Aristotle, right? That he, he's completely obsolete in light of modern science. We all remember the, uh, the weights that Galileo dropped off the Tower of Pisa and showed that Aristotle was indeed wrong about, uh, about how fast weights would, would fall. But I think that, uh, well, first of all, I think that his demise, the stories of his demise are greatly exaggerated. Uh, and secondly, that looking back, it's clear that a lot of baby was thrown out with the bathwater in the 17th century, that uh, the scientific revolution took a turn which I guess Lewis in The Abolition of Man says it was science was born in an inauspicious time. And I think what he meant by that was exactly the, the decline of Aristotle that twisted and distorted the beginnings of science in certain ways. So anyway, what I, what I think and what I've been pushing the last five or six years is that, that the quantum revolution that occurred about 100 years ago now has completely changed the situation. So that between Galileo and the quantum revolution, you might well think that science had shown Aristotle to be obsolete. But now it's clear that, science, that Aristotle has been vindicated by modern science. That uh, in fact, uh, quantum physics takes exactly the sort of form that you would expect if you were looking at the physical world from, a, from an Aristotelian point of view. Uh, this is not yet widely understood, but I'm, I'm hoping it will become so after uh, I and some of my uh, colleagues and protégés have, have worked on it some more. Can you give us maybe one or two examples that help sort of crystallize in the mind of how kind of walking through an example of that, how quantum physics changed our understanding of reality and how that change in our understanding of reality actually draws us back toward an Aristotelian understanding of what, well, to look ahead, what lies underneath that physical reality. Right, exactly. One of the quantum physicists, namely Heisenberg, was one who early on saw there was a connection here. He said that, look, what quantum physics has done is revived Aristotle's notion of potentiality. 
So before the quantum revolution, the, the physical world consisted of just the actual world, where the particles actually were, where they've moved, what their trajectories are. And to talk about what was potentially the case was merely a kind of thought experiment. It didn't, didn't have any connection to the physical world. The quantum revolution changed that dramatically. So now in order to understand the physical world, you have to look at not only what's actually happening, but what's potentially happening. So the probabilities that are basic to quantum mechanics are defined over a set of potentialities. And Aristotle is the great master of potentiality. He's the one who introduced the idea into philosophy and science in the first place. And so that I think is the most important thing that's happened. Closely related to that, and this is something that I think that Bohr, the great Niels Bohr, the Copenhagen quantum physicist recognized, is that what quantum mechanics tells us is the microscopic world is not self-contained. It's not complete, right? So again, before that, in the, in the Newton-Maxwell picture of the universe, so to speak, right? Newton's gravity and Maxwell's theory of electromagnetism, you might think that the world ultimately consists of tiny particles moving through space, through, moving through a vacuum, interacting with each other through various forces, and that everything else is, as Rutherford called it, uh, stamp collecting. So biology, politics, anthropology, and so on, they're not really ultimately scientific because the only scientific stuff, the real oomph of the world, so to speak, is occurring at the microscopic level. What quantum mechanics shows us is that's wrong, right? Because quantum mechanics says that in order to understand the microscopic world, you have to understand it in relationship to what Bohr calls the classical world. That is the world of human observers and their instruments in the laboratory. And those things themselves cannot be reduced to the microscopic level without leading to paradox and to contradiction. This is where the Schrodinger cat thing comes into play, right? So if you try to reduce the observer and their instruments in the laboratory to quantum phenomena, the result is you get no observations whatsoever. You get no results. So you put the cat in the box, close the, the door of the box. It's, it's connected to some radioactive source that might, may or may not kill the, the cat. If you reduce the cat to the quantum level, the cat is neither alive nor dead, right? He's 50% alive, 50% dead at the same time. And only when you open the door and look at it, does it become alive or dead? But even that doesn't work because now if you take the human observer and put them into the quantum equation as well, the quantum observer is only not really observing a live cat or a dead cat either. He's become indeterminate. So the point is to get from quantum theory to something that's actually testable in the laboratory, you have to move beyond the quantum world. You have to assume there's something that isn't reducible to quantum phenomena. And that, it turns out to be what Aristotle referred to as substances. So you and I and the instruments that we use in a laboratory, they are substances. They are holes that are greater than the sum of their parts. And because they're greater than the sum of the parts, they can have definite positions and locations and temperatures and entropies and so on. And it's only because they have those properties that you can then interact with the microscopic world. So the microscopic world becomes a world of potentialities, potentialities for interacting with the macroscopic world, the classical world. And that world has to be an Aristotelian world. So the bottom line here is that, that Aristotle's notion that holes are greater than their parts that that's been vindicated by quantum mechanics. I think there's really no way around that. So the, the giant kaboom I'm hearing in, in the distance, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is the, one of the scientific prejudices that we all just sort of run around with in our heads is that the smaller something is, the more fundamental it is. Right. Exactly. But it sounds like what you're saying implies that that's not true. That's right. I and mean, physicists, unfortunately, still talk that way. 
they'll talk about the fundamental particles being the really small ones. But quantum theory says, from a philosophical point of view, they are not the most fundamental things. In fact, they're less fundamental than the chemical, biological uh, substances that are, in some sense, made up of these microscopic particles. Uh, that, that's right. And so, I mean, the bottom line for this thinking about anthropology is the worry that, you know, that my agency is disappearing here because really it's just my particles that are moving around in my brain and that determines my thoughts and my actions. That turns out to just be wrong from a quantum point of view. Your brain, your life is itself shaping and directing those particles. There's a, there's a real top-down causation that's going on there. And that's really important news, I think. It suggests that the whole direction of the social and human sciences of the last hundred years has been wrong. It's been misdirected. It's based on some sort of notion that everything's bottom up again, that if we just understand how the neurons work, we'll figure out what people are. Wrong, right? You have to understand what people are to know what neurons are. You have to go in the other direction. So what does the future look like for, for this news? I mean, you put it well, I think, in saying that's news. And it took a long time for the Newtonian revolution to work its way down to the, the man on the street. Now it turns out, as you're saying, the man on the street has equally wrong ideas in his head now, and, and we're starting to understand better. What is the prognosis? What does it look like for correcting this? What is that process? Yeah, it's a good question. And in fact, it's not just the man on the street. Most of my philosophical colleagues are still have this Newton-Maxwell picture in their minds, and they're still worrying about you know, how there can be minds in a world where everything's just matter. And that's just wrong, right? So, so I'm hoping that we'll begin to change the philosophical opinion, at least make a space for a, a real revival of Aristotle. And indeed, it's happening. And not just among religious people. I mean, a lot of atheists uh, like David Charles at Yale and Anna Marmondoro at Oxford are, are coming around to seeing the importance of Aristotle and, and understanding these things. So, so I think there's a basis here for a kind of um, new consensus or at least a new position uh, that's viable within philosophy. And then hopefully it'll start trickling out to the wider public. It also seems like just to keep kind of exploring this further, one of the other big implications of what you have already just said. There are a number of explosions built in there. Another of the explosions is the return of the immaterial. So it seemed like a, another part of the Hobbesian or Baconian existence was that everything ex that exists is material. And by material, it means we can point to it and have evidence that tells us that it's, it's there and physical. But it seems to me, if I'm not misunderstanding, that one of the implications of what you're saying is that there are real things which are not material and which are causal. Right. Yeah, so um, how to put this? I mean, from an Aristotelian point of view, we're not moving towards a kind of dualism as though there's some kind of uh, ghostly entities that are interacting with the physical world. That's actually a position that you got from rejecting Aristotle. So Descartes, after he'd reduced the, the natural world to these microparticles and, well, little vortices and so on, he had then to shoehorn the mind into, this, into the picture somehow and had this interaction problem. So when you go back to Aristotle, what we get is not that kind of dualistic picture, but rather an understanding of human beings, again, as wholes. So that what you call the immaterial aspects, you might say, is not some separate entity that has to interact with my body. It's rather just me, my living body, with understanding and meaning and purpose built into it fundamentally. And then those facts, you might say, about me are shaping and directing the microparticles, right? So, it, and there, of course, there's interaction. I mean, obviously, if my, if my particles are pushed in a certain direction, that will 
inhibit my actions or, or, or even kill me, obviously, in the extreme. So there's bottom-up still, very important. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, we shouldn't continue to look at neuroscience and other ways in which the, the small, you know, affects the large. But we shouldn't think that it's going to be reducible to the small. That's, that's the crucial thing. So you're right, there's an element here of, you know, what the Germans called Verstehen, right? That is just understanding people as meaningful, purposeful entities that is going to be restored to scientific respectability, I think, if this, if this project works. Yeah. I want to talk about some further implications of some of what you're working on in that whenever I learn something new, I then go about my daily life and all of a sudden the implications and the relations just start popping up all over the place. And I think, how have I been blind to this for so long? And it, you know, I wonder if you've been struck as you're thinking through all of this in the way that we are always living out some or other philosophy, either consciously or unconsciously. What are the ways we're unconsciously living out this wrong view of the world that needs to be replaced? And therefore, what are some of the implications that you've thought about, if any have occurred to you, of bringing Aristotle forward? Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, when you got the hammer, everything looks like a nail. And uh, my colleagues sort of, sort of laugh sometimes because I'll always bring Aristotle into every subject. <laughs> and, and you're right, I, I haven't started thinking that way. Oh, gosh, there's lots of things I could talk about. I mean, another aspect of this that might be relevant to interests about politics and culture is the idea of human beings as social or political animals. So again, there's a kind of holism there, right? That is, it's, it's a different kind of holism, though, because for Aristotle, individual human beings are the fundamental substances, right? So we are more real in some sense than the city or the political is. But nonetheless, the political is not reducible to our individual psychologies either because, you know, the city kind of gets inside our heads, right? Our political institutions shape who we are in, in really profound ways. And I think Aristotle provides a way of thinking about that that, again, is very helpful and avoids, you know, the errors of what we might call methodological individualism where you just try to reduce all the social phenomena to individuals maximizing their pleasure or their money or whatever the economists tend to do, right? <laughs> I think Aristotle gives you some grounds for skepticism about that kind of approach. Yeah, I think that's right. I think of that sort of thing in terms of my marriage. Yeah. In right. that my marriage seems to me something that is real. And yeah. it, well, we've been married for six years. So it was a new thing in the world six years ago in that it becomes a reason for action. Right. It becomes a thing on account of which I do something or other that is right. not reducible to either me or my welfare or my wife or her welfare. That's right. But it's not just a means or an instrument to something that's independent of it. It becomes an end in itself in a sense. Right. And so I, you start to see these things. The family is that way. Friendships maybe are even that way. A friendship is a real thing. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, Aristotle, of course, helps us to avoid, again, the sort of dualism between selfishness and altruism, let's say, right? As though those are the only two options. And Aristotle says, no, there's a kind of higher selfishness, right, so to speak, when you make a friend where your welfare and the friend's welfare are united into a whole. Now, some of these things maybe will come up. You, you mentioned, as we were just coming in today, that your next big work that you're working on is on Aristotle, nature, and theology. Yeah. So this is sort of related to what you were asking a bit earlier, which is, you know, how are we going to get the word out to a wider audience? And so we think one perhaps receptive audience is going to be the theological community to help them understand that this is not a lost cause, right? That we can mine these resources of the Aristotelian tradition and theology and do so in a way that's concordant with what we know about the natural world. 
I'm actually going to give a lecture in January at the University of Dallas, and it's going to be about the importance of natural philosophy in a Thomistic and Aristotelian kind of approach and how that, uh, you know, if, if you don't have that, then the worry is that the work we do in theology or politics is sort of floating up here and the physicists would tell us, no, that's completely unrelated to the actual world of you know, particles. And so what we want to do is bridge that gap and show that we can, we can do this kind of, well, we can approach humanity, human concerns in a theological perspective, while at the same time really respecting the fact that we're part of nature. Excellent. Well, if someone's listening to this and decides they want to dip into Aristotle, but they've neglected perhaps their education did not include much Aristotle, as many of my own did not until graduate school. Where would you send them to start? Yeah, great. So it's a good question. I mean, Aristotle is not the most accessible writer. <laughs> so I probably wouldn't send them to the metaphysics. It's a bit of a, a bit of a slog. I mean, you might be better off. Well, I find myself reading Aquinas' commentaries on Aristotle very helpful. Uh, so he has a commentary on the metaphysics and also on the physics. That's something to consider. There's also some good, more contemporary people who've written about this. I mean, I like the work of Ed Faser, uh, F-E-S-E-R, who's written a lot about Aquinas especially, but also the, this Aristotelian background. Um, a number of his books are, are touching on that. He's got one called Scholastic Metaphysics. It's a pretty good introduction to, to this sort of thing. Let's see. Michael Pacolic on the ethics. Yeah. He has a very good introduction, I, I think. I, he's, that's right. And actually, the Nicomachean Ethics, that's a good suggestion. I mean, that's, I think, one of the more accessible parts of Aristotle. It's really written in a relatively non-technical way. It gets you to the bottom line pretty quickly. I mean, it doesn't really give you the metaphysical machinery you need, but maybe it tells you why that might matter. Well, we promise people that if they give us their coffee break, they'll learn something. So that means we're closing in on our time limit here. But I do want to say that as we have been recently revamping the Austin Institute's website, it will soon bear links to the works of our senior fellows. So if you want to follow along as Professor Kuhn's and his colleagues develop these thoughts and kind of reintroduce Aristotle to a lot of people who need it, you can pick it up there. Just find your way to austin-institute.org. And I want to thank again, Professor Rob Coons, Senior Fellow of the Austin Institute and Professor at the University of Texas at Austin for joining us today and talking a little Aristotle over coffee. Thanks, Rob. My pleasure. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.